Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is July the 21st, and our chapter for today is Malachi chapter 4. Malachi, my messenger. And indeed, Malachi was the last messenger of God before the close of the Old Testament canon. Now, what is a canon? We hear that from time to time, and let me take just a moment to explain that to you. A canon comes from the word kana, which is the word for a measuring rod that was used along the Nile River. It was a measurement. It measured the height or the depth of the water in the Nile River. That was brought right over into the language as a measuring rod or something that measures up. When we talk about the Old Testament or the New Testament canons, we are talking about what books measured up, what books made the grade, what books made the cut. And so you'll hear not only scholars referring to the canon, but to uh, pastors that you will listen to. They'll say the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. What it's talking about are the books that made up that particular part of the Bible. Well, Malachi was the last of the Old Testament writers. Then the canon was closed. That is, for 400 years, there wasn't an open word from God from the close of Malachi all the way down to when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, Zechariah, was in the temple doing his coursework. That is, it was his part of the family's time to be doing the sacred duties. And he was there when the angel Gabriel spoke to him and said, your older wife, Elizabeth, who is barren, is going to bear the forerunner of the Son of God, the Messiah. And he was astonished. Why? Because there had not been an open word from God in 400 years. So before you come down on Zechariah, just remember, he hadn't heard of anyone hearing of anyone for 400 years. But what were the days of Malachi? Malachi came along a hundred years after Haggai and Zechariah. And as you'll recall, then there was the in-between period of Esther and Mordecai. And we've looked at that. Ezra, Nehemiah, the great revival under Nehemiah and Ezra. And so many wonderful things happened through Ezra. The Torah portion, as it's called by Many was established during the days of Ezra the scribe. So much of what affected the life of the Lord Jesus on earth and the Jewish people came about during this intertestamental period as far as the religion, as the religiosity, as the routines, as the rituals that were still in effect during the days of Jesus and in many regards are still in effect today, the things that the Jews are continuing to carry on 2,400 years after Ezra. 
Well, by the time that Malachi came on the scene, the fervency of revival that had happened under Nehemiah and Ezra had now died down. And it doesn't take long for that to happen. It is just in the course of human nature. I believe this is why God gave the spring festivals in a concentrated way and the fall festivals in a concentrated way because it has been, as I have found out in my years of ministry, it doesn't take long for all of us to get bored with the things as they are, and we begin to lose our fervency, our passion, and the only answer to that is is to get back into the Word of God, because you see, it is in our nature to coast, and the only direction you can coast is downhill. You don't coast uphill to the next level, only downhill. So the moment we begin to miss our time with God, the moment we begin and the day we begin to say, well, uh, I don't have time for God today. I don't have time for the word today. I don't have time for prayer today. That is the day when what we think is ritual and routine turns into the beginning of a way of life. And the next thing you know, we are distant from God. Our love for him has grown cold and we are what is called in the Bible a backslidden condition. That is, we may have taken a step forward, but we've taken two back. Well, the years have passed and it's taken its toll on the people of God and specifically the priesthood. You say, well, in what way? Well, God had several complaints against the people. One is that in chapter one, they were bringing in second rate sacrifices. In other words, they'd stopped giving God their best and they were bringing in lame animals, blind animals, instead of the firstlings of their flock, instead of the best of their flock. In other words, they were keeping the line share and the best for themselves and giving God what was left over. Do I need to say any more about that or do we get the picture? Lying, lack of enthusiasm, all of these things. When we try to look at God as though he is a man, as though he doesn't see through it. When we say, as in verse 13 of chapter 1, that even the priests were saying, this is a weariness to serve God, and they were sneering at it. God actually says, you also say, oh, what a weariness. This is verse 13. And you sneer at it, says the Lord, and you bring the stolen, the lame, the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord that which is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is to be feared among the nations. What we bring to God says a whole lot about our heart. If we give to God our leftovers and not the first fruits, if we withhold the tithe, and God deals with that in the book of Malachi, if we withhold our obedience, if we say, well, I know better than God, I know the economy better than God does, and I know how much money I need. No, God says, I'm the one that turns on the faucet, and I'm the one that turns it off. You and I either obey God with the, what he deserves, or the Lord will, as our Father, discipline us, and he may take what we already have away from us. You say, well, I don't have as much as anyone else. It's not accounted for what you don't have, but what you have. Do you have a house? 
Be grateful to God for it. You say, no, I have two houses, three houses, four houses. Well, how much does it take? I have one car, two cars, three cars. I have one cell phone, two cell phones, three cell phones. I have, you see, if we have bread and water and a roof over our head, if we have a clean place to stay, we need to get on our knees and thank God. You know why? Because most of the world doesn't have that. If we're going to look at what we're going to compare ourselves to, we can always find someone that's better off than we are and someone that's worse off than we are. This is why comparison is such a horrible taskmaster. Please hear me. God deserves our best. God deserves the very best. He deserves everything we have. He deserves our best time, our best treasure, our best talents. And if we come to God with our leftovers, okay, Lord, I'm worn out, but whatever this few minutes gives, I'm going to read your word here right before I go to bed. Well, that's fine. But I'll tell you, it's likely you fall asleep and you won't remember what you did read. What I would encourage you to do is give the best part of your day to God, whatever that is, stop and give it to God. Why? Because he's the one that gave you that day. If it is you that is not giving a tithe, that's 10%. You need to start giving 10%. And you say, well, really, are are you legalistic? Listen, the law, we so misuse the law. We use that word Torah as though it were law. It just means instruction. It means teaching. The teaching of tithing is that God deserves the best, which is the first 10%. All he's doing is instructing us. He's not trying to hurt us or harm us or take something away from us. He's trying to help us to understand the principle that if we would give the very best of God, the first, then we would be honored by God because God wants us to honor him. He will honor those who honor him. You say, wait just a minute. I'm under grace. Well, then act like it because grace teaches obedience. Grace doesn't teach disobedience. Should we therefore, because we're under grace, let sin abound? God forbid. May it never be. You see, this is the antinomianism of our day. This is is the kind of perversion of grace and cheap grace that has been foisted upon the people of God in America and in the West. You see, God will do his part, but he has given us a part, and that is to repent, confess, and obey. Many of you have wrestled, for instance, with weight. You've wrestled with diet. You've wrestled with a particular sin. And you say, I just don't understand why God doesn't take this desire away from me. Well, you won't let him take it away because every time that the desire comes into your heart, you play with it. You mess with it. Instead of asking God to help you to uh, shun that and put it behind you, you start messing with you start messing with sin and we'll get burned every time you will. And I will. We have to not mess with it at all because it will mess us up. And so this is exactly what Malachi is saying. He's saying you want God's best, but you give him second best. You want God to honor you, but you don't honor him. You see, folks, it doesn't work this way. Over and over again, God has said, return to me, return to me. For instance, look at the passage in chapter three. Yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances, from my teachings. You've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. This is the same teaching of the New Testament. 
It's in Malachi. Yes, that's Old Testament. Well, what about the book of James? Draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. Is that Old Testament? No, that's New Testament. You say, well, that's the book of James. Well, is James the Lord's half-brother who wrote a book in the Bible? Is it not as inspired as Paul or Matthew? Well, of course it is. And you see, we show our love for God through our works. You say, oh, I cannot believe this. This is such a works orientation. No, it's a biblical orientation. Because we are saved by the grace of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse, we're so easy to quote Ephesians 2.8 and 2.9. What about 10? That's another verse. It's all in the same paragraph. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, brought into existence in Christ Jesus for for the purpose of good works. In other words, the whole reason God brought us in to his kingdom is not to just go to heaven in the sweet by and by, but to live in the here and now in the name of Jesus as godly, righteous people sharing the love of God and being salt and light to a putrefying and decaying and corrupt generation that is walking in darkness that needs the salt of healing and and salvation, and needs the light of the glory of God. The book of Malachi ends in a solemn promise. Here's what it says. It says, But unto you that fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise. And that's not talking about S-O-N. That's talking about S-U-N. He's bringing out a metaphor that just like the sun and its rays penetrate every part of the earth, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and shall grow fat like a stall-fed calf. He says, and you shall trample the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on and says, remember, remember what my servant Moses said when he commanded you in Mount Harb. In other words, remember his teachings. Those teachings are just as powerful today as the day they were given. And it says, I will send Elijah your way. Now, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find out that God did send Elijah, and his name was John. We call him the baptizer. The Lord Jesus said, if you will receive it, then John the Baptist was Elijah. In other words, he came, he did no miracle like Elijah, but he preached the greatest message that's ever been told about the greatest person who ever lived about the greatest deed that was ever done. For On The Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at tonycrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.